Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy Yunan, and this episode is crazy. I got to talk to Robert Fisk, who is a Middle East reporter, journalist. He's been covering wars in the Middle East for uh, decades, and um, it's the documentary. Robert Fisk is the subject. Well, one of the subjects in the TIFF documentary. This is not a movie directed by Young Chang. I asked a question to the director Young, like, is this a documentary about Robert Fisk or is this a documentary about journalism? And his answer is very interesting. And that's the thing you can't really discuss Robert Fisk without discussing journalism as well. And it's interesting because as our conversation unfolds, um, one of the more inspiring moments for me is when he kind of talks about standing up to authority and understanding the risk. We go through this really ridiculous cycle of how we kind of smear, um, we like we smear and we kind of are belligerent to people that are standing out from the crowd or rejecting the narrative. And it's this idea of rejecting the narrative that really makes this documentary stand out. So here is my interview with uh, Robert Fisk. I did my best. That guy <laughs> is intelligent. I'm a smart dude. That guy's intelligent. So I did my best to hang on. Uh, you'll see the results. And uh, director uh, Young Chang, who is also quite brilliant. And uh, the film is extraordinary. It is well worth checking out. It's called This Is Not A Movie. Here's my interview with these two gentlemen. Beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host. Sam Yunan, and uh, I'm joined today by uh, foreign correspondent uh, Robert Fisk. Is that your official title? That because in the documentary, mm. you really like the idea of the foreign correspondent from Alfred. Yeah, Hitchcock. my title is actually Middle East correspondent of the Independent, but mm-hmm. I don't really care. You call me, you know. So you're here at TIFF because you have a uh, documentary. It's called "This Is Not a Movie." It explores uh, your work and your life in the Middle East. When you when you see the documentary. Are you aware of the sacrifices that you had to make to, to bring this type of journalism to Americans and to other readers and to British readers? I'm not quite sure what you mean by sacrifices. You mean working with him? Working with him, but also I meant really just like just choosing to live in the Middle East like that. Like, because you talk about how like Beirut is your home now, right? And like you, like there was it's a point. It's been my home for 43 years. Yeah. And so it's not an easy lifestyle for people that don't know or not comfortable, like uh, compared to the way that the West is. You don't. I guess you don't find it as a sacrifice at all. No, of course not. No. no. I mean, why should I? I mean, I, when I first went to Beirut, it, it was a state of chaos and war. Mm-hmm. And I lived on afterwards in the ruins, and lived on afterwards as Beirut was rebuilt. But um, the Lebanese were very cultured, thoughtful, intellectual people, and uh, you, there's no reason to think that living in any Arab capital is a sacrifice. Um, Cairo is a pretty tough. Place yeah. to live in. Mm-hmm. Heliopolis, even Heliopolis is. is you know. Yeah. Um, but no, I think Lebanon is a, is a fine place for a journalist to live. Yeah, there's no sacrificing. And to do the job well, like the documentary shows you literally on the front lines and going to these places, mm-hmm. and you kind of are drawing this distinction between a lot of journalists who kind of either like report from YouTube or mm-hmm. from the hotel. Well, look, th- they exist, those mm-hmm. journalists, and I do draw that distinction. My concern is not where they're reporting from. Mm-hmm. It's how can they get sources if they don't go to the place where something is happening. Uh, you know, if I 
sit outside this room, I can call some numbers in Beirut and Damascus and talk to friends whom I've trusted for years. Mm-hmm. And I could write a story, but I frankly have to go back to Beirut within four days, which I am doing, in fact, in order to have a private conversation and find out what they really think. And it's the same with you know using email. Nothing is secure. People like to talk to you, especially in the, as you know, in Egypt, mm-hmm. especially now with Sisi. You know, you can't talk on the phone, or you better not talk on the phone yes. unless you want to visit the you know Torah <laughs> prison complex. So um, uh, there's another good reason for being in the Arab world as opposed to reporting from New York. I think the other thing is that uh, you know we've um, we've entered a world where the sort of nexus of the you know, Pentagon, State Department. White House, I'm talking in the United States terms, is, as usual, setting the story for the press. You know, Establishing the narrative. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be bad Iran, good Israel, nice Saudi Arabia, etc., etc., etc. And even though the American media are prepared to denounce Trump as mad, which he clearly is, mm-hmm. they still go along and think, oh, the Trump policy on this is. And, you know, they suddenly take him seriously when they've already denounced him correctly as being a complete lunatic. And you've got somehow to get away from this and stop people believing in stuff on blogs and websites. You know, I had a lady ring me up in Beirut um, some uh, months ago saying, is it true Mohammed bin Salman has uh, visited Tel Aviv to have private talks, secret <laughs> talks with Netanyahu? Well, it's obviously, you know, it's majnun, it's, it's completely crazy. But I uh, said, look, where do you get this stuff from? Oh, it's on blogs and my Facebook friends are telling me, come on, stand on the ground with your feet. Mm-hmm. It's not true. It cannot possibly be true. But somehow they've become so obsessed and addictive to you know, pressing telephone buttons, cellular phone buttons, that they believed the stuff. You know, it was like it was in their brain. And you know, sometimes even at lunch, a friend will start spending his time pressing the buttons on his cell phone. I think, excuse me, are we going to talk or you just want to play games with your machine Mm -hmm. Um, but in actual journalism it becomes more and more problematic serious to find that sane ordinary people around you actually believe this stuff occasionally it may be true but you know um, Mohammed bin Salman going to meet Netanyahu not yet anyway Mm -hmm. Um, you know I think it's necessary when you have a reporter on the ground whether he be 20 50 73 as I am or whatever you know go out see the place, talk to the people who are there, witness it, and you may not get it 100% right, but you're going to be a lot more right than Facebook. Mm-hmm. And part of this, too, is one of your one of your abilities is you can listen really well. Like You ask good questions, but you also listen well. And I think this is kind of the distinction that you're talking about because when people are reading stuff online, like on Facebook or whatever, they just want confirmation. It's not like they're already coming with a question. Yeah, they also want to turn it around and make it abusive. I mean, one of the problems is the amount of abuse that any journalist now receives. And it's another diminution of the technology which mm-hmm. you know we've acquired. But I think, you know, and, and perhaps you should put this point now to Yang, w- w- one of the questions is, do you film on the ground or do you film just talking heads? I mean, everybody apart from a few odd recordings showing you know, people being abusive to me, everybody in the film mm-hmm. is filmed by, by him. And I think that uh, the film in many ways reflects what I try to do, but does it on a vast cinematic scale. Mm-hmm. You know, the big screen actually shows me a lot of things. But I think, uh, I think you know, Young would agree that in many ways <coughs> what he's trying to do, and I realized it quite quickly, is what I'm trying to do but in a very different medium, 
Yeah, that's a hi. Hello, <laughs> introduce yourself. Just oh, this is Young Chang. I'm the director of the film. This is not a movie mm -hmm. uh, about Robert Fisk. Um, yeah, to touch upon that idea of uh, of um, of being on the ground. I mean, I think that was part of the approach for me was to kind of take a page from Robert and be the be the eyewitness reporter. You know, cutting through all the uh, the um, the bullshit I, I read online about about Robert and and then get to know him for real the way I mm -hmm. see him and uh, and that was the point of having the cameras with him we were following him working you know and um, and and what we documented what we what we filmed is uh, is exactly you know capturing those moments can only happen because we were there and I think as someone like myself who was a uh, was Chinese uh, Canadian and and not of uh, the Middle East um, it was uh, certainly more important for me to be there to, to get a sense of what uh, what the world was like so is this a documentary about Robert Fisk or is this a documentary about journalism yeah yeah that's a, yeah I prefer to, st to say it's a it's a documentary about journalism through the eyes and thoughts reflections of, of someone like Robert Fisk someone who has the longevity and experience as a journalist um, trustworthy person I would say that we could that we could um, have someone like himself sort of give us some ideas of what of what journalism is and allow the purpose of the film is to allow the audience to sort of, to sort of be provoked to think about critically think about the role of journalism today in yeah. today's world and in terms of the journalism what I find interesting is the way uh, a lot of times you show Robert throughout the documentary it's very like a slower process like he's making tea or he's writing uh, in a notebook but using a pen and paper or he's reading a newspaper and cutting things out and doing that kind of he has that little kind of uh, archive of newspaper articles it's all it's very not little at all <laughs> uh, sorry. Yes, sorry it's not little at all <laughs> sorry not little at all no yeah. I can tell you yeah. it is not little at all <laughs> that 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 idea of being slow in terms of like the journalism that you're talking about in terms of the documentary have we lost slow because now everything's just online and yeah. it's like no I no no I think that Robert speaks to it in the film I mean we are inundated with information and it's very difficult uh, to sort of glean it like get anything out of that information I, a headline doesn't tell you anything I think uh, as Robert would I think attest to reading a book um, you know reading long-form investigative journalism which I, I guess is called slow journalism now. I mean, that, I don't know. What do you think of that term there, Robert? I don't like it because I think I work very fast. <laughs> you know, if something happens in Syria or Lebanon or anywhere else, I, I jump on the first plane like, like I always have and like I think journalists must. Mm -hmm. The problem is that I often find myself on a plane with no other journalists. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, I gave an example to Young when we were chatting the other day that um, when uh, some years ago in Tripoli, northern Lebanon, not Tripoli, Libya, a group of Islamist armed men uh, took over a building in central part of the uh, city, uh, a city I know well. You know, I <laughs> in Lebanon, I've lived there for so long. I jumped in my car and I went straight to Tripoli, and the military had this, these people trapped in a building, and there were bullets skittering around, and a lot of journalists there. And there was an army officer who knew me and said, Robert, do you want to come with us? And I said, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and they went into that building, and you know, they shot one guy out of a window into a burning car park. Uh, it was pretty dramatic stuff, and, and it was dangerous. And I had a great story. I mean, I, I, this was the first time we saw armed Islamists actually violently intervening in Lebanese politics. But when I came outside the building, I realized that I was the only Western journalist there. There were Lebanese journalists, and I think it was an Egyptian journalist, representing 
Western news organizations. But the BBC guy was broadcasting from the BBC studio opposite the Sarai in central Beirut. I thought, what has happened? You know, why am I, I don't mind being the only Western journalist. It gives me a run in front of other people. But, uh, you know, 30 years ago, there have been packs of my colleagues up there from America, Britain, France, Germany. Canada, perhaps. In fact, there was a Canadian French, uh, Canadian um, Lebanese reporter there, mm-hmm. uh, whom I knew, but she was there representing a French organization, and she was there on, with a Lebanese passport. You see, and I think that when I'm not slow, I, you, the idea that you know old school journalism is is slow is is wrong. It's the fact that uh, cheap journalism, and I mean that in the financial sense, where you can write this story in Greenland you know, Cairo or anywhere else. Um, This is the problem. They're going to read agency wire stuff and they're going to call up old friends and so on. And you can't report this accurately and get the detail and talk to people if you do that. Um, In the past, we did do that. But now there's a kind of acceptance that new technology allows us not to go to the scene. Mm -hmm. But how are you balancing then justice because justice too isn't always swift or fast fast enough like social media and things i'm like not that. in charge of justice but like i'm a journalist i, I you know if, if people are moved by what we write or, or what young films mm-hmm. to ensure that politically justice is done even if it's in a foreign country uh, then we've achieved some of our purpose but i don't um i, r- I write about injustice but it's not my job to go forward and say what justice should be you know I'm, I'm not a politician maybe i can add to that as the as a filmmaker i think that's exactly right in the films we make uh is that uh we don't set out with the with the um with with the goal and there's no goal in the filmmaking process i think the idea is to provoke and to leave questions to provoke debate to to, to allow people to to sort of think about uh, cer- certainly in this movie, uh, to think about, you know, wh- you know how we how we engage with 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 media and the news, and and that was really the the the, the you know what I wanted to do with this film. And is that you're you're highlighting that as the difference between like say a filmmaker and a journalist, because as a documentary filmmaker, I mean, that for me, I I, I do like to make I think. Films that leave me asking questions are, are better than the ones that sort of leave me with a statement. And I don't I don't think I make a statement film. I think that's not that's not what I what I what I like to do. And um, and it's more effective, I think, if you if you let something linger a little longer than sort of I think I feel like you close the book when you say this is what it is, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I think for all my films I think that's essential to, to let us linger a little bit and think about things. So it's almost like a question leads to another question then. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to leads to questions, leads to uh, perhaps the, someone thinking, oh, I, I should, you know, I've had this exactly happen to me where people then decide to go, for example, with Up the Yangtze, they decide to go to visit China, they go to the Yangtze River, you know, they, they, they get on the, like Robert would say, they get on the ground and uh, and see for their own eyes what is going on somewhere. And I think, but perhaps that's, that's the mission for this, not that I might want a mission, but this mm-hmm. is, you know, Perhaps someone will read Robert's book, <laughs> you know, or, 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 you know, read more books in general. And, and I think that, that that is partially the goal, too. Reading now is becoming kind of a revolutionary act. Like, Robert, you're, you're kind of known for challenging authority. And that's now just the ability to sit down and read and actually do the research and connect is becoming kind of a revolutionary act, isn't it? 
no, I don't think it's anything revolutionary. It's what we've been doing all along. What the revolutionary act is people who close books and don't read them anymore. Uh, you know, yeah. but uh, it, it's not like you know, reading a book is natural to me. I r I love reading books, real books, not e-books. And um, I probably read three books a week, um, sometimes more. And I can read right through the night and keep reading. It's like I'm on an adventure. <laughs> you know, it's not quite as you know dramatic as the actual adventures I do go on. And remember, journalism in the Middle East, if you actually go out on it, is an adventure. Mm -hmm. But reading books again doesn't mean this is slow journalism. You know, you read. Even when I'm covering a, a major war, uh, I read a book when I go to bed at night, you <laughs> know. And I think that um, unless you understand and you read deeply, not as research, I do it for pleasure. You know, I don't, I'm not a kind of eternal student. I don't think I need to be. But I, I, I learn by reading. And reading, as opposed to patting cell phone telephones and e-books and so on, Reading gives you rumor and ideas of how to reflect on something. It makes you go back. You ask yourself, no, that's not what happened last time in Lebanon. That's not what Assad last said. That's not the way the mandate in Palestine worked after the First World War. Or did it work the same? And so you suddenly see what many Arabs would see, especially older Arabs, you know, <laughs> the longer than I have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have a habit in the West of telling Arabs about their history. Yes. And I always say, no. Don't do that. They understand the history extremely well. It's you that don't. I want you to listen to them. Mm -hmm. And very often you can spot in very big, dense history books things that people have said to you on the street the same day, uh, which means they do understand their history. There's no reason why people, if they want to play with telephones and you know, blog people, I don't care, but it's a waste of time. You should use up all your time on serious analytical approach towards um, but I, I think, you know, I, I think that Facebooks and so on have become a, a sort of psychological addiction, which is which is very damaging to people, whether it's journalism or not. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to pick up on that thread of serious analysis like you're talking about, because you do go in with an intent to ask questions and to listen, as we've kind of established. But you end up going through this cycle, this constant cycle of like smear and being called anti-Semitic and all these things. Do we have to continually go? Like, we've been doing this since, like, Galileo, since, like, you know what I mean? Look, like every time, you know, when I was in, uh, and you see this in um, in the film, in Young's film, in, in Belfast, most of the journalists took the view that the British Army were good, that the IRA were wrong. I didn't like the IRA at all. <laughs> I don't in the film. But um, I started writing stories about how British soldiers were beating up Catholics in Belfast. My colleagues knew they were felt it unpatriotic to write this mm -hmm. and when I did write it I was accused of being not just unpatriotic but pro-IRA and therefore pro-terrorist and I was only in my 20s mid-20s at the time and this was pretty news this was pretty damaging stuff for me at the time and I thought uh, then I was working for the Times of course of London and I thought look either I'm going to fight these bastards or I'm going to end up writing the crap that they do <laughs> and I decided that you know um better to fight than to uh, jump into a box full of Zabeli, you know, <laughs> through rubbish. And that's what I did. And actually going back, and I, it actually does pop up in, the, in Young's film, that that taught me how to fight. Do not accept the rubbish that people throw at you. Do not accept what the British Army says. Do not accept what the State Department says. We're talking about the Middle East now, you mm -hmm. see. Um, I, I covered quite substantially Bosnia, and the NATO war in Serbia, and exactly the same thing happened. I decided 
to base myself in Belgrade and travel around ex-Yugoslavia under NATO fire. So I was then called the pro-Serb correspondent. And, you know, the moment I found a hospital with young dead people outside, civilians, young women, um, what kind of propaganda do you think you're making, Robert? And by this stage, you know, and I've said it much more clearly in the film, I said, oh, to hell with you. I don't care what you think. You know, they're not abusing you because they're trying to elucidate facts. They're abusing you to shut you up. And if I'm going to shut up, I might as well go home and read poetry. Mm -hmm. And I don't going to be shut up. I'm sorry, no. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I say in the film that my father, who was a soldier in the First World War, not fighting you Ottomans, but fighting the Germans in France. Yeah. At the end of the war, he was asked to execute an Australian soldier who, had, who was drunkenly killed, a British military policeman, and he refused to do the execution because I'm not going to kill another soldier. And he lost his military career for that, which I think was brilliant. He stood up to all the authority of the British Army, British tradition, British officialdom, and said no which is partly what Amira Al-Haas is talking about when she says um, monitoring the centers of power. You don't accept what they say. Mm -hmm. We conflate treason uh, heresy because... <laughs> What's it got to do with heresy? Heresy, I find, is how you, th how you advance things, how when you start, like what you're talking about, when you start to question the narrative. And no, it's not. Heresy in, in Milton, for example, uh, was the word you use for what you would say now is terrorism. Um, if you wanted to uh, instruct someone, and Milton actually says, this, if you read Paradise Lost, and if you look at the um, if you look at the 16th century writers in Britain, 17th century, mm -hmm. they use the word heresy as evil, something to be uh, resolved by death, very much an ISIS-like thing. Uh, if you read that period, the word heretic is used as we now use the word terrorist today, mm -hmm. so it does not have the meaning you suggest. That's fair. But I want to... It's not fair, it's true. Yeah. Al-Hakia. Yes. <laughs> so I want to just switch, though, because I want to go back to you. As Robert's describing these things, uh, being on the front lines, being in the war and stuff like this, the title, too, this is not a movie, is this partly applicable to you, too? You're now all of a sudden in this situation. He's almost used to it, but you're finding yourself now in this situation where you are shooting a movie, but it's not a movie, if that makes sense. I think I, think I was... I mean, that the title... I think is applicable to the story, mm -hmm. uh, but I think we did make a. M I, I would argue that you know, of course, we've made a movie, yeah. and it's um, and it's an interpretation of of uh, of uh, uh, well, my you know, I look at documentary as the interpretation of reality in a way. It's you can't just present reality. Uh, it'd be like filming someone, um, you know, eating a uh, you know eating a meal, and what where's the story in that? You know, mm -hmm. you just can't let the camera run. There's nothing. There's no, there's no, there's no arc in that. So I think I do think we, you know, this is a movie mm -hmm. about something that is not a movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's how I feel about that film. Yeah. I'd like to add something about the film there. I think that the title, which is his title, I, I mean, I, I use uh, the phrase. Yeah, I know. But yeah. it's not. I, I didn't suggest it to him. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's interesting because, in a sense, I mean, I only saw it once before I came to Canada in Beirut, but on a small screen, you know, like laptop, in fact. When I saw it on the big screen mm -hmm. uh, last night, as we're speaking now, uh, what struck me very much is that it was very much like a very dramatic big screen production. Uh, it, you would see it in the cinema. Yeah, it, it, It's a film that has high production values. I mean, it had a lot of money spent on it. Mm, yes. um, not for me, but for the film. And um, 
I think that some of the people come across, for example, Nermine, the young Palestinian girl whose father has just been murdered, whom we met quite by chance. I mean, we didn't know her name. We didn't even know the name of the father. Um, and in particular, Amira Al-Has, whom you meet. And actually, even Haim, the Israeli settler, mm -hmm. who suddenly calls the Palestinians passé, you remember. They are, you know, I don't like the use of the word actors when used about politicians, you know, the key actors. I don't use that. But in real terms, they actually come on like people in a movie. Mm -hmm. you, you, you not only believe in them because you know they're real, but they speak, they speak to you. Yeah. Uh, not, not as, you know, a political some political party leader will waffle on television or to a camera and do a, you know, heads to camera. They actually pop up in a very dramatic way. And I think that in many ways what Young's film does, what This Is Not A Movie does, is it actually transfers the reality. You can't say 100% because that doesn't exist mm -hmm. <laughs> except in mathematics and religion. But if you, it, it actually transfers the reality that I see onto the big screen in a very big screen way, in a movie sense, in the, in the old fashioned word of cinema. You know, documentaries in a way gave itself a bad name when it started calling itself documentary. Uh, you yeah, know, really. uh, uh, and, and I think that uh, because it's boring, intrinsically it's dull. As he was saying, like you don't want to just shoot somebody eating a meal. Well, no, there are quite a few meal uh, programs <laughs> about people eating meals and making them as well, but mm -hmm. no, it, it, it is, I'm trying to think of the right set of words to use for it, as I would perhaps use it in an article in The Independent in the next few days. Uh, it is actually what he was doing. He was shooting a cinema film in reality. There's another, well, I don't know what you think of this other term, but there's a great filmmaker from Canada, uh, Alan King, and he came up with the idea of the actuality. He calls it actuality drama, his filmmaking, which is sort of, it's observational filmmaking. It's observing a reality, but it's, uh, it's also... Uh, he think he, he didn't like the term documentary, and this was his idea that it's 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 something that's you know unfolding, but then there's a drama inherent within that that he's making. So I don't know. But the editing as well too, because the the editing. Oh, let's talk about that. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, because you do to. a great job. Well, your team does a great job with the editing, because it, it starts off uh, was it 1980 Beirut, yep. and then no, it, Abaddon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it, it segues like smoothly to yeah. like. I mean, that was the uh, there was a, a very conscious intention, uh, and I think this was really sparked by um, Robert's uh, uh, my my experience with Robert in in, in my initial uh, research trip with him in Beirut that uh, he is someone who can take you down a, a street in Beirut and, and describe to you in great detail the historic references from the past that then when you look at the street again, it's not the same street. Mm -hmm. It's full of the, uh, you know, the bloodshed, the, uh, you know, the, the, you know, everything carved in that, in that it, it just becomes, the past becomes very present. And so given that, uh, I, I, that, that for me was the, um, the structural idea behind the movie when we went into making it. Uh, which was, let's figure it out in the editing room, but we want to integrate this past-present feeling also because we had some amazing archive, um, Robert's personal archive, a couple of films that followed Robert through the, through the, through the decades, one in Northern Ireland uh, for the BBC. It was called, the, uh, called Reporter, and the, and the second one was a, a film called Beirut, Beirut to Bosnia, which Robert uh, was the presenter and... Uh, a writer? Were you the co-writer, a writer, or something like that? Alas, 
alas, <laughs> which was a, he could talk about, which was a horrible experience for him because um, there was, I think, one to do with the limitations of filmmaking, which was at the time shot on film, which then made it so that it couldn't be, it was a little, you know, you said it was a little more directed in that, in that way. No, there were two problems with the film. Uh, I have to say that uh, I insisted it was shot on real film. Mm -hmm. uh, Araflex, I think, as far as I remember. I insisted it was not most uh, documentaries uh, w were filmed on uh, video at that time. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, it's I cheaper. want... I, yeah. I said, I want the clarity and perfection of... Uh, you know, you almost gave you Technicolor, which is not actually color perfect. It's not reality, but it's pretty good and very convincing. And I thought the film would would have a great power if it was filmed effectively on cinema film i was trying to do the same i was trying to make it hollywood quality and it was actually if you if you look at it it holds up because you see it in our yeah film. You, you see it in the film and it actually once or twice forgive me um has the power that suddenly young's film can't provide the, the color is stunning the color is of course is not correct you realize that we're yeah. talking about you know when you have technicolor color um film, yeah. it's film it's, it's a different question but nonetheless uh, that was my re request and insistence that I wouldn't make a film unless it was used on, f uh, unless it was film, real film. I think the problem was in those days, um, a director believed that his job was to really take over a film. And, and the director, Mike Dartfield, who was a very nice guy and a very brave reporter, was also an extremely dominating character. And, uh, very sadly, he, he tragically died in a road accident not long after the film was uh, shown. He had defended the film publicly in Britain, but then he died. And he never made it, as far as I know, another film. But he was a very dominating character, and he believed that there was nothing wrong in saying, well, can you go back and say, can you ask that question again in a slightly different way? Can you stand over there, and could you get that Palestinian to, can you get those kids <laughs> to stop, you know? And in Sabra Shatila, we, we took three weeks to film a sort of five-minute shot. And the problem in it was the kids kept coming out and doing this in front of the camera, waving, you see. And he said, no, no, we can't have them waving in front of the camera. And I said, but Mike, they're only reflecting what you're doing. You're performing theater here, mm -hmm. and they want to be participants, so they wave at the camera. Yes. They want to be in the movie, okay? Mm -hmm. Don't kick them out, because uh, in the end, he got his way, and we went, you know, for a long period of time, we asked all the families to tell their children, if you're in the camera, you won't be shown on television, you see? And all this time, in the end, we had a scene which looks... It's totally false Hollywood where I walk through the camp and everyone goes about their business <laughs> like, you know, robots, all knowing that and, and not looking at us because it's those mad Brits again wandering <laughs> up the street with us. Yeah. And we had a dolly, a railway track. You know, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't normal, was it? That's Hollywood. Yeah, that's Hollywood. But the trouble was with it was that it comes across to anyone who knows Beirut as having this stilted, acted quality. And for me, this destroyed the reality of the, of the yeah. country I lived in. It wasn't bad in the sense there was nothing morally wrong with it and that was the may the way that films were made then documentaries you know um, mike as far as i remember he started off very much in films for panorama which at that stage was a great not so much now frankly not at all but it was then a great documentary weekly series um he always said to me you know no film no documentary is really good unless a soldier puts his hand over the camera <laughs> and sure <laughs> enough everywhere he went he persuaded some israelis to say, put his hand on the yeah. camera you Bob Fisk in the service of truth was being suppressed by the <laughs> Israelis, you see. And I just thought it was tiring, immensely wearying mentally. And I, 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 at one point we fell out very seriously and I refused to do a shoot with him. He had to do it without me. He, but again, that's Hollywood. You can do that. You can work around you. Uh, he couldn't in the end because he needed me in Poland afterwards. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. another story. We're talking about this film. Um, but it was, it, was, it was immensely wearying. The other problem then, and here we come to a, 
a, a technology issue, which well, Young should, one, yeah. yeah. The camera and the umbilical, it was a sound man. The equipment was terribly heavy. I used to offer because I saw Cameron was a young, fit man, but the camera itself was so heavy. I don't know how many pounds it would have weighed then. Um, because I'd insisted on film partly. So I used to carry his sticks. Now, the stick, you know, the, the tripod. Mm -hmm. Now, now you can chuck them over your shoulder. Those days you heave them up, hung yeah. on to them, and eventually, at the end of the day, I had big marks of wheels of you <laughs> yes. know, pain on my shoulder. This was obviously a problem for them because in a very hot country, we filmed in Egypt, for example, mm -hmm. uh, everywhere from Aswan to Giza, we, we went out with the Egyptian police patrols and going around in the heat and... Um, having to argue with the Egyptian police about why we were taking this shot and why we couldn't take that shot. And I, I began to feel this is not journalism. They're not following me around. I'm their slave performing <laughs> you know, on, a, on yeah. a screen. But I think the film, which was bitterly attacked by the Israeli lobby particularly, mm -hmm. was actually a, a masterpiece in its way. But talk about equipment and... Sorry. No, no, I, I mean, to add to that, Beirut to Bosnia, we use quite a lot of it in our film as the... Uh, you know the jumping point to the past to see Robert in the in the in in the nineties and and to and it it is it was very well shot. I mean, some of the most beautiful footage in the film is when we cut to to Robert driving at dusk and uh, Magic Hour. You know, that's that's remarkable film footage. But I do think, yeah, the limitations of technology uh, do affect the reality of the filmmaking process. And uh, and I would say with big cameras, that's what something we noticed very early on in our research process, when we had shoulder camera cameras that, that uh, you know, it would attract attention. You mm -hmm. would get people distracted. It would, you would feel, it would, you know, if, if Robert would go up to someone to interview them, you would feel this, the um, awareness of the camera. So uh, Duray Munajim, who is the cinematographer, decided that, Iraqi-Canadian cinematographer, great, great cinematographer, decided uh, and it, that, you know, we had to break down the camera to make it the smallest possible. And so we used sort of an, I, I was going to say, an arsenal of cameras, like uh, small cameras, uh, including something called the Blackmagic Mini, which was something we could build to be very handheld. And that allowed us to move the camera close and get it into into this the personal quarters of, of characters and really mm -hmm. push push and break that feeling that, that we were watching things from afar. I wanted, I wanted to get it close and feel something that we were with Robert uh, over his shoulder, you know, right next to him as he was investigating stories. So congratulations, the, the documentary is playing now at TIFF. Uh, what happens now? Where does it go? And uh, where are you hoping yeah, to go? Uh, yeah, so generally we're going to do the festival circuit. Um, you know, there's many more festivals that I think the f that we can play uh, around the world. And, uh, and then eventually a theatrical release in Canada, I believe, next in 2020. So I would um, look out for This Is Not A Movie distributed by Blue Ice Docs. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I, I'm sure down the line, much further down the line, a broadcast somewhere on a network here. Uh, but, and as the same in around the world, and for example, we will have a, a broadcast in, in Germany on Z and France and on ZDF Arte, uh, in the Netherlands on Vipro and in Switzerland on, 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 on their public broadcaster. So yeah, there'll be, a, I think there'll be a wide release and hopefully reach many people um, definitely I hope I, that's my hope for the film and the number of the places that uh, you shot the documentary in did you enjoy going to the uh, Middle East and seeing some of those places and well uh, yeah and, and to clarify I didn't go to Syria that was with uh, Duraid and and uh, Nelifer Bazira the producer and uh, and they went with Robert I I joined on every other trip and um, I was uh, how to describe uh, I learned a lot yeah 
and uh, I, I and I like I like being in the Middle East. I I, pref- I would like to you know go to Beirut again and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and travel and uh, and maybe Robert can take me on another tour somewhere. But yeah, great. Thank you, gentlemen, for the time and th- thank you for the documentary. Uh, I appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I told you. Uh, I did my best <laughs> hang out with uh, to keep up with uh, Robert Fisk, and uh, I got left behind. Uh, uh, hopefully, <laughs> his impression of me is not too. Uh, I can't say it. It is what it is. As I said in the in- intro, and as they w- as we kind of talked about, this is not a movie. It's playing at TIFF, and um, it's directed by Young Chang. It is fantastic. If you have a chance, check it out. If you're interested in journalism, um, narratives, how we cover things. Definitely, it is worth pants. You could follow me and mock me for trying to keep up with Robert Fisk on the Twitter at MyPalSammy, on the Facebook, MyPalSammy, and on Instagram, MyPalSammy. Thank you so much for listening and taking the time.